Welcome to the Redeemer Covenant Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. At Redeemer, we are dedicated to following Jesus and connecting people to God's transforming love. If you want to stay connected to all that's happening here, visit rcctulsa.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Well, if you have been here throughout the month of May, we have been in this series titled, But God, as you just saw in that video, the presence of God changes everything in that moment of our helplessness and our hopelessness, our total depravity. God arrives on the scene and changes everything. Uh, This morning, we have a treat for you. His name is Daniel Roach, and he is a very dear friend Uh, to the Redeemer family, and to many of us on staff. I'm just going to talk to you instead of about you. Uh, Bill and Denise and I and our team, we just really love you, and we affirm you, and we honor you, and thank you for coming to worship with our church today. Thank you for preparing a message uh, from God's Word for us. This is going to close out our But God series as we start Sermon on the Mount next week. Um, Andrea and I even flew home late last night from Haiti because we just couldn't wait to hear this brother preach. Uh, But it it is just such an honor to have you with us. Thank you for what you mean to our family. So now I'm going to say to the church family here, I want you to put your hands together and give Daniel Roach a nice, big, loud Redeemer welcome. Come on. Adam and his family, Denise and her family, um, Bill and his family, Gretchen, uh, the whole staff and this church has been so special for us. And you don't know it, but we got connected with you a long time ago when we were serving in missions overseas and seeing your generous support to the European team that we were a part of uh, has meant so much for us. And so this is one of those things that like our report of this church has gone way back and it's always been amazing things. And now we get to come and be a part. And uh, so thank you so much. Has anyone ever cried on Bill's couch before? Like that's, you guys have an amazing church, an amazing pastor. And um, We're just so grateful to be here. So, Bill, thanks for the opportunity to minister to your congregation this morning. Um, However, I do have some issues with this sermon series, and it's made it a little bit difficult as a father who's trying to raise three little kids, three, five, and eight, because as I tell them the title of the sermon series, I say, well, I'm preaching about, but God, and they go, Daddy said the bad booty word. Well, no, but uh, it's different. Um, I'm just kidding. This is an amazing sermon series, and I do love how God intervenes in these moments. Am I right? When we are frustrated and we are at the end of our rope and when we are down and we are hopeless and when we need something from God, but God interjects, but God shows up. Whether it's through prayer, whether it's in the midst of temptation, whether it's that miracle that we need and seeing him show up, that's what God does. And so we're going to look at another story of that today. And we're actually going to look at the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles on your phone or in front of you, the the one in your chair, please turn to the book of Ephesians. There's a table of contents at the beginning. Uh, Please use that, but it's towards towards the very end there. And we want to look at this story, I actually want to look at kind of just the overview of 
what's this city all about? And why is Paul writing to this city? We're going to look, uh, here's where Ephesus is located in what modern day country? It's okay to talk in church. Thank you, Turkey. All right. And where is Ephesus in proximity to the water? It's on the water, right? So what does that mean? It means it's a port city. It means it's this hub for commerce and trade and business. It's this influential city. There was a, a, a main library, the Celsus Library that was there. It was this hub for philosophy and culture. And this is a city that Paul knew personally. Paul spent some time in this city. He spent about three years in the city. The first three months he spent going to the synagogue and speaking to the Jews and trying to reason and help them understand from the scriptures, Old Testament, who Jesus was and what he did and what that meant for them. And then after they were like, all right, we've had enough. You are off your rocker. This is too far. Then he spends two years with his disciples going to the uh, Hall of Tyrannus and speaking to the, the people there. And this is where they would do their philosophy and they would work through stuff. So that's the library on the right, the Hall of Tyrannus on the left. So we actually, this is, this is a real place where Paul spent time. He knows the people in this city. He ministered in this city. Acts uh, 19 tells us that God was working so much through Paul in this city that cloaks and handkerchiefs that Paul used were taken to go heal the sick and taken to go cast out demons. Is that not wild or what? So, like, someone pulled a, a hanky out of the trash can and went and, like, cast out some demons in the name of Jesus after that. And it even says that some people had kind of picked up on, on this and were trying to use this and um, one of the demons says, you know, I know who Apollos is. I know who Paul is. I don't know who you are. And the demon beats the person up. All right. So don't tell me that this Bible is boring. All right. This is crazy. You can't make this stuff up. Amazing, amazing stories. So this is what's happening in Ephesus as Paul is there and he's ministering and he's serving in this city. Amazing, amazing work. And then in this letter to the church in Ephesus... It's funny because it's almost a little generic. He doesn't get real personal of, hey, tell this person to do this. I know you guys are struggling with this. It's a little bit more this generic presentation of the gospel. But for me, it almost makes sense. I remember when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, and I was preaching at our, our youth service on a Sunday night. And I was talking about Jesus and presenting the, the crucifixion and trying to explain what Jesus went through on the cross and what he did for us. And I got all my guys, like my boys, I got them all to come that night. And I just wanted them to hear this clear-cut overall presentation of the gospel. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. It's because he knows the city. It's because he loves the city. He loves these Christians that are here. And this was also meant to be used in other different cities and as a circular letter. But I think that's why we have this clear-cut presentation of this is what Jesus did and this is what it means for your life. And that's what we're going to do this morning is dive into that. So let's read Ephesians 2, 3 through 5, if you would follow along with me. Ephesians 2, verses 3 through 5. It says, all of us used to live that way 
following the passions and desires of our evil nature. We were born with an evil nature, and we were under God's anger just like everyone else. But God, amen, but God who is rich in mercy, and he loved us so very much that even while we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised us, when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's special favor that you have been saved. And so this is the passage we're going to work through this morning. And I hate to do it, but I kind of need to start with some bad news, if we can do that. We'll start with the negative, and it's a little bit hard to hear, but we'll actually step back a little bit to verse 1. We'll look at 1 through 3 to see what this bad news is. It says, You were once dead, doomed forever because of your many sins. You used to live just like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan, the mighty prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. Who? How many of us? All of us, thank you, used to live that way, following the passions and desires of our evil nature. All of us used to be that way. And so what I have to start with today is we are broken. That's just all there is to it. We are are broken. Um, What's the first step of recovery, right? You have to admit your brokenness. You have to admit that you're an addict, that you have an addiction. And I think that's what we have to do here this morning as well. We have to admit that we're human. We have to admit that we have stuff inside of us that is not good, that is not helpful, that is different than the standard that God puts in front of us. Told you this would be really encouraging, right? Sorry about that. Um, But this is really hard for us to hear in our society. We don't want to talk about this. We are so busy talking about how people are, you know, they're a really good person. Oh, they have a good heart. What's the first thing people say about someone? Oh, they're, they're a really good person. We're so busy sending good thoughts and positive vibes all over the place. We don't want to confront the fact that, you know what, I'm not that good. I'm not that positive all the time. I'm actually pretty broken. And if I'm left to my own desires, it's it's kind of ugly. And I'm going to be selfish. No one had to teach me to be selfish. I was talking with someone this week and uh, kind of talking through this point right here. And he goes, I remember the first time that my son lied to me. Just bold face, straight up lied to my face. He was three. And he was like, I didn't do it. And he was like, I know that you did it. I watched you do it. And he's like, he just lied to me. And he calls his mom and dad. And he's like, he just lied. And his, his parents just laughed at him. Sometimes it's hard as a parent. Grandparents, you get the easy part. But it's like, yeah, he just lied to you. He's human. He's broken. Of course he did. It's something that we all experience. We are broken. Here's another bug God statement. Let's look at Luke 1615. You don't have to turn there, but it says, you, you, you try to justify yourself before men, but God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God knows our heart, but God knows. And so we can cover it up and and do everything that we can to minimize it and act like we're okay and we have it all figured out. God knows our heart. 
what do people say about church? Why do they don't, they don't want to come to church? A lot of times you hear that phrase, oh, it's just full of hypocrites. Oh, the church is full of hypocrites. What if we acknowledge our brokenness a little more? What if we actually talked about how we didn't have it all together? And then when someone comes and they realize, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling. I just lost my job or I'm, I'm dealing with this or um, this just happened and, um, you know, my marriage is falling apart. What if someone was like, you know what? There's a church that you would be perfect in. There's a church full of broken people just like you. You know, Redeemer Covenant Church, you would fit right in there because it's just a bunch of people trying to put their life back together and trying to figure it all out together. Wouldn't that be a cool church to be a part of? Wouldn't that be cool to have that be your calling card and the way that people reference? Hey, there's some empty seats here. I know some other broken people that need to be here and you'd fit right in, okay? We're just getting through this together we're trying to figure it out we are all broken if we admitted that what would that do let's be done with some bad news cool Cool. all right okay let's talk about some good news let's talk about this we're broken but God loves first but God loves first and I could easily just say you know oh well God loves us we could sing a little little children's song you know, we're in his hands and he loves us. And that's, that's really true. But I think in this passage, we need to emphasize the fact that God preempts our brokenness. It's not just blood, it's not love, blanket love right there. He is preempting our brokenness. Ephesians 2, 4, let's read that real, real quick. But God, who is so rich in mercy and loved us so much, even while we were dead in our sins, He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Romans 5.8 says it this way, and you probably heard this before, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, when did he do it? While we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. Now, if that's me, I I think I need a guarantee, okay? Uh, If you apply for a loan, You need to have some type of collateral, right? I need to know that you can pay this back. If that's me, I want some type of promissory note in order to know that this is going to work out. And so as Jesus is in the garden and he's saying, God, let this cup pass from me, I would, if it were me, I'd be like, hey, let this not be a waste. God, let people 2,000 years later in Tulsa, Oklahoma, let them still be believing this. Let them still know and come to grips with this. I don't want to waste this. I need some type of guarantee that this is going to make a difference. But that's not what Jesus does, right? Jesus says, I'm going to do it with no guarantee that we're going to believe, with no guarantee that we're going to follow and accept. But God loves first. And so maybe this is the first time that this is sinking in with you. Maybe you feel, oh my gosh, God is speaking right to me right now. And if that's the case, praise Jesus. Let's talk about it after the fact. Maybe this is a refresher course for you. And this is like your continuing ed. Uh, This isn't the first time that the church in Ephesus is mentioned in scriptures. We have that kind of encounter in, 
in Acts 19, we have this letter that Paul writes to the church. But it actually comes up again in the book of Revelation. And you might know the story. There's an angel and he has these letters and he pulls out these seven letters to these different churches. And he reads these letters as kind of a state of the union. Here's here's what's going on in your church. This is what I think about it. And in in Revelation 2, this is what the letter to the church in Ephesus said. And I think this is really important for us to help understand that God loves first. Uh, We'll start in, let's say, verse 2. It says, I know the things you do. I've seen your hard work. I've seen your patient endurance. All great things here. I know you don't tolerate evil people. I know you've examined the claims of those who say that they're apostles, but they're really not. You've discovered that they're liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. All great things. And then in verse 4, this is what the letter to the church of Ephesus says. But I have this complaint against you. Uh Uh-oh. You don't love me or each other as you first did. I have this complaint. You don't love me or each other as you first did. Look how far you've fallen from your first love. Turn back to me again and work as you did at first. This is that moment. Whether you grew up in this church and you've known and you believe this stuff for your whole life, this is that moment to go, is this my first love? Do I love God and do I love people? As you plan for a sermon on and a series on community this summer, do I love God and his people the way that I once did? Is that still the burning desire when I wake up in the morning to see where God's moving and to spread that type of love? Is that the dominant thought in your life? But God loves first. Okay, well, what next? What next? We know that we're broken. We know that God loves us first in the midst of that. And to close out here, I want to I frame what does that next step look like and understand that there are consequences to grace. There's consequences to grace. And we see this in Ephesians 2, We'll look at at 5, kind of the later part of 5b. It says, He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. All right? It's only by God's special favor that you've been saved. And in this translation right now, this is the the NLT, it doesn't quite highlight um, this phrase that Paul uses over and over again in in the book of Ephesians. Um, The NIV talks about, He made us alive with Christ. He made us alive with Christ. There's a consequence to this act of grace and receiving this free gift of grace that now God makes us alive with Christ. And he uses this phrase over and over again, 34 times just in this letter to the Ephesians. He talks about us being with Christ or in Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, alive with Christ. And Paul is is so determined and focused that this relationship with Jesus means something for our life. There is something different that changes. The first consequence of grace is our identity changes. Who we are 
is now different because of that. Our identity is one with him because we are with Christ, in Christ. And that carries with it consequences. That's why it talks about us being a temple or us being an ambassador, okay? So you say, where is God in in the world? Where is God in in the midst of this tragedy? Where is God in the schools? Well, we are his temple, And so his spirit dwells in us. So we can't say that he's not there. He is there. He's there in us. He's there in your workplace. He's there in your families. He's there in the brokenness because we embody him. We are with him and in him. So we are there in those moments. That's the first consequence. The second consequence of grace is this idea of participation. What we do is determined by grace. And this is the idea of of cheap grace versus costly grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer really formalized this aspect of, is it cheap grace or is it costly grace? Costly grace will cost you something. It is the consequence. But if we just take the gift of grace and salvation and nothing else changes, it's cheap. And he says this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German theologian, he was a pastor, he was a spy, pretty much the coolest business card ever. And he says this about cheap grace, he says, it's baptism without the discipline of community. It's the Lord's Supper without the confession of sin. It's the absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, Grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. And this is what he calls us to. Not cheap grace. But there's a consequence of this grace. And it changes our participation. It changes what we do and how we live our life. And he says costly grace, on the flip side of that, looks a whole lot like the Sermon on the Mount. Pretty cool. You guys are going to study that this summer, right? And he says, this is not just some theoretical thing that, oh, it's nice, and Jesus was a wise teacher, and he threw out these little pithy sayings. He says, no, the Sermon on the Mount is actually meant to be lived out. Even those impossible aspects, this is the standard. This is what we're called to. This is how radical our lives change because of the consequence of grace and because of our participation. What we do looks a whole lot like the Sermon on the Mount. That shift in his life happened when he came to the U.S. He came to the U.S. Uh, it was 1930s. It was a year after the stock market crashed. And he did a fellowship in New York, and he got involved with this church in Harlem. And before this, his early work, before he kind of came up to this cheap grace, costly grace aspect— his theology was really tied into German nationalism. And the idea of what a good Christian meant was equally the same as being a, a faithful German nationalist. And you read some of his early stuff, and it's, it's, it's a little dicey. And then he comes to the U.S. in 1930, a year after the stock market crashes, and he's with this church in Harlem, and he begins to understand racism. And he begins to understand He begins to understand these systematic things of oppression and 
Um, he begins to understand the black liberation gospel and things that this is how, you, how it's lived out. This is where Jesus is. Jesus is present in these moments of pain and suffering and heartache. And this is how community is formed in the crucible of those things. And so his life was radically changed by his time in Harlem and what he learned about grace and where his theology came from here and became action-oriented. Ephesians 2.10, we talk about grace by faith. Ephesians 2.10 takes that and he says, yeah, we're, we're God's masterpiece. But he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we could do the good things that he's planned and prepared for us long ago. There is this consequence of grace that changes our action and changes how we live our life. And so to close, I just have two questions for you this morning. Two simple questions. The first question is, what will you change? What will you change? The rest of this letter of Ephesians is filled with aspects of calls on how your life will be different now as a result of this. Ephesians 4.1, it says, live a life worthy of the gospel. Ephesians 5.1 urges us to imitate God in everything that we do. Ephesians 5.8 says, live as people of light. Ephesians 5.15 says, be careful not to live as a fool, but as someone that is wise. And so what Paul does in this letter is he takes this idea of grace and salvation and what God's done for us, and he says, okay, here's how we live it out in this generic, this is the, the impact of that. This is the consequence of grace. So what, what will change in your life as a result of grace? How will you be a peacemaker in the world? How will you be obedient to the scriptures How will you bring about hope? How will you be an agent of freedom and change in your school and in your workplace and in your families? How will you change the world? Because, oh, by the way, that's the task that Jesus has given us. So how will you change? And the second question is this. What will you risk? Seems a little strange, right? What, What will you risk in this? 2 Timothy 3.2 says that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be, do you know what it says? Will be what? It's not good. Persecuted. If you want to live a godly life in Christ, you will be persecuted. So what will you risk in your life as you do that? Uh, there's a book that I read a, a couple of years ago that came up again this week by Edward Gilbreth. And he, is the, he works for the Evangelical Covenant. He's the executive director of strategic communications. And he wrote this book about Martin Luther King. And when he was in jail in Birmingham, Dr. King wrote a letter to, to the church, so to speak. And he, he talks about this letter and, um, and kind of works through it. 
But there's this quote in the letter by another person, Randy Woodley, who's a Kitawa Cherokee pastor. He's a seminary professor. And this really stood out to me as I think about what we risk. This is one of those moments, it's hard for me. It says, I have mostly white students at the seminary. And it's very easy for them to fantasize that they would be standing with King if given the opportunity. They idolize Dr. King without realizing the risk and suffering that was involved for whites back then who dare cross the color line. People have fooled themselves into believing that they can follow Christ and risk nothing. Have we fooled ourselves into thinking that true Christian spirituality can be developed without the risk of losing job security, personal safety, or social status? So what will you risk this morning? This Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, where the, the church calendar, all churches all over the world, stop and reflect on the Spirit of God moving 50 days after the resurrection, where the church was really born, where Peter stands up and boldly proclaims who Jesus is and what he did and what his work on the cross meant for all the people there. 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ on that very first Pentecost Sunday. I'm thankful that 2,000 years later, we still get to proclaim we still get to see the impact of the consequences of grace in our life. We're still preaching and proclaiming that we're broken, but God loves first. We're preaching and proclaiming the consequences of grace. May we live that out today.